0: Hello and welcome to a very special holiday bonus episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden, publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. Our very special guest today is David Crable, retired principal horn of the San Francisco Symphony and honorary member of the International Horn Society. I had the opportunity and distinct privilege of getting to speak with him about his new book, Through the Door, A Horn Player's Journey, as well as a number of other really interesting topics, uh, philosophical, spiritual, practical horn playing, as well as some really great stories from his many, many varied experiences as a musician. I just want to say that I am recording this the day after Thanksgiving here in the United States and I hope that uh wherever you are whenever you are listening to this that uh you find peace this holiday season. Uh on to our conversation today uh Mr. Crable and I talked about uh a lot of things. Uh I think you'll find his um his delivery, his uh positive outlook uh, really inspirational, and uh, I hope that if you enjoy this podcast, you'll take the time to go to uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a quick review. I'd love to hear from you. Um, please do stay tuned at the end of the episode for two very special archival recordings that Mr. Krable mentions in our interview. He mentions a performance at the 1971 International Horn Symposium featuring himself, Dale Clevenger, and Mikol Hutsu, uh, in a performance of uh, Rika trios for horns so that's included uh, be sure you listen to that entire track because there's some really interesting stuff on it as well as a duet an improvised duet that Mr. Crabill mentions that he created with Dale Clevenger at that very same 1971 uh, horn symposium so without further ado I hope that you enjoy my conversation with David Crabill my guest today on the Horn Call podcast is, uh, I hesitate to say for most of my guests that they need no introduction, but Dave Crable really doesn't. He's uh, such a big name in the the horn playing world and been such a tremendous influence to uh, so many of us, and I I can't express how honored I am to be speaking with him today. Welcome, Mr. Crable. Well, thank you
1: very much. It's a great honor to be involved with this. Well, I mean, (laughs) I'll tell you quite frankly, I had no idea this would um, blossom into uh, such a uh, overtaking activity as this book has generated. Uh, (laughs) uh, I I expected to just to write my little life story and just fade out into the, into the sunset here on the West and uh, it's picking up some traction. People like it. And, uh, now I'm involved in podcasts and publicity and this kind of thing, and my wife and I wonder if we created a monster. If we did the right thing,
0: well, I think as 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 long as it's on your terms and it it's it's what you want to be doing, and and so I guess a good place to start would be to mention your new book. It's called Through the Door: A Horn Player's Journey.
1: Well, was getting too verbose? It's uh, it started. Uh, a year, year or two ago with, with an idea that I needed well actually I, I went I was going through some old notes and things that I had and uh, so, some mostly teaching stuff mm-hmm. uh, uh, about physically playing and uh, about understanding music and so on and, and I had all these notes floating around and I thought well I'll put those down and maybe I'll make an article for the horn call
2: mm-hmm.
1: Uh Quite frankly, after looking at the whole thing, I, I, I've never been too <laughs> uh those technical articles in the horn call always sort of, I can't really get through them. You know, I, I never I never really uh, liked teachers. I liked to figure it out for myself. And I didn't want people telling me what to do and how to do it. Uh, anyway. In, in creating an article for The Horn Call, I realized that I didn't want to make some, something that people would say, oh, more of this, you know. I wanted to get some entertainment and uh, sort of the life story. And it, so it it, it gradually uh, uh, blossomed into sort of my, my whole life story about... Uh, how I started, how I got started on the horn, uh, the difficulties I had as a student, because I'm pretty dyslectic. And so uh, the memory thing is always hard for me. I could never uh, remember the multiplication tables, for example, and, uh, and to remember the, the uh, musical history, the modes and all the things I had to learn in college <clears throat> was difficult, but the one thing I had was really um, the love of music. And music always affected me uh, in a in a very emotional sense. And uh, <clears throat> that's what got me through um, my other deficiencies. And so the horn was my vehicle to sort of understand myself. I, I think uh, at, at the risk of getting too deep here, uh, my whole life story is is about me trying to understand who I am and why I'm here, and the horn, and performance gave me these wonderful opportunities to see uh, how to see how my uh, ego affected my performance and how how I was vulnerable to uh, so being I was vulnerable to being critical of myself and. And exposing myself in performance, and uh, it, it was uh, it was a challenge for me develop to develop the idea, which you hear in my book, uh, of creative not caring, of being able to take chances, mm-hmm. and and uh, and play in a way that uh, I was walking on the fine edge. There's a story in the book about when I was in Detroit and. Uh, I, it was a turning point in my life when some woman came up to me after a concert and with the she thought she was giving me a compliment. She said, I was really a great horn player because I never missed any notes. <laughs> and that hit me like a ton of bricks because for somebody to be aware of my playing and, and, and think of it as not missing notes instead of, wow, that was special in some way you know the idea that really good performance really 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 good uh musical performance is special in in some incredible way which is way past not missing notes it's something that touches you in a in a way it's almost like from another dimension and so i vowed at that point to never have anyone Ever come up to me and say that again to me? If they had to say something, they'd say something that involved emotion in the music, or or it was terrible, or whatever it was. <laughs> you <know. laughs> and, and This is where the
0: this is where the creative, not caring, philosophy came up, came from. It,
1: yes, it's re- it really did. I pride myself out of being being safe and playing safe. And strangely enough, that whole idea, well, it, it all started with that first big audition with Fritz Reiner in, the, in Chicago when I was only 21.
0: This is in the uh, hotel room. And I remember the story from your book where you went to play the low B-flat in Heldon Lehman and nothing came out. And <laughs> he said, it was, you want, what yeah, you, it was what the you, first note I played. Yeah. once you try that again? <laughs>
1: yes, it, it was an
0: incredible
1: uh, moment in in time for me reflecting backwards because it started this whole idea that I better wake up and figure out what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and, and my attitude about it because, well, I'll tell the story. You know, I couldn't play the first note and, and knowing the story about this desk conductor, I knew that my audition was over. You don't miss anything and so I just gave up and relaxed and uh, meantime he went over there and picked up a copy of Fargus's new book Art of Horn Playing and he thumbed through it and he says in a grovelly voice he says your teacher says you must loosen the ombrochure for the low notes <laughs> <laughs> so I I did it again and the and the note came out so completely at Serendipity, uh, because I gave up and I knew the audition was over. I relaxed in a way that made it possible for me to play the audition. At the same time, psychologically, he probably thought, well, this kid's all right. You know, I told him what to do and he did it. So uh, he's okay. <laughs> you know, I can't, you know uh, these things have happened in my life. And that's what the book is about, Through the Doors. These opportunities have presented themselves in ways that I can only wonder why and how. And that's what the book is about. It's about me looking back and saying, how is it that I received these opportunities and was able to struggle my way through those doors and keep going.
0: I love the Go book. Ahead. It's, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's part autobiographical and that you talk about your own personal journey as in the title. And then, you know, it's, there's, there's this, uh, if, if I'm not going too far to say this, there's a spiritual element to it, if you will, uh, you asking those big questions, why am I here, what am I doing, uh, to me that that resonated uh, a lot, and I think it will with readers, but then I would also add, it's a very practical book, there's some actually, some really good practical hints for uh developing one's resonant sound and just you know uh freeing yourself of anxieties or at least learning to cope with them so i i mean th- there's a lot in this book for for players of all levels and i would say even even non-horn players would probably be interested in reading this book well thank you you know this uh we're thinking about putting it
1: out we put it out to a, a, a publicist who's not involved in the music business and he read it and he Mm -hmm. thinks that there might be a a venue or a market for a book like this outside of the music world. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, we had no idea that this could be possible. We'll see what happens. I didn't write the book to, I only wrote the book for me. I didn't write it to make money. I didn't write it, I don't think for ego's sake. I just had to get it off my chest at this point in my life and uh and, and now it's it's spawned itself into something a little more complex. And actually, um the person that's helped me write the book, Ruth Ann Krauss, R. A. Krauss at the bottom there, uh, she's encouraging me and urging me to do the spiritual part of it. To to do the same kind of book, but actually my spiritual journey and not my horn journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, well, a, a same thing. I wonder, well, who would be interested in in something like that besides me? I I find it fascinating to try and dig back and, and understand these things about myself. And I don't know if there's a book there. There might be 40 pages or something like that, but it's not going to be like this book. Anyway, you start something
0: and you never know where it's going to go. Absolutely. Could you, if you don't mind me asking, could you talk a little bit more about what the writing process was like? You said you had all of these notes and things, maybe trying to put together something for the horn call, but what, what, what was that like working with uh, uh, Miss Krause and, and trying to coalesce all this together into a, into a book?
1: Well, she was a big help. She really helped me organize it. And I'd come with pages and pages of stories and we'd organize it, and I can't tell you how many times we went to uh, the copy place and made a copy of what we had so far. <laughs> and uh, uh, this, this is the this is what I see as a really hard part of doing it, especially this next book that I'm thinking about doing is getting it organized there's so much material there but how to fit it together it's like a giant puzzle
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and uh, with her help we put this book i think pretty chronologically together in a way that it uh it works
0: yeah absolutely it reads it reads a lot like an autobiography there's there's a narrative quality to it it's not just you know episode after episode it there's a all of the stories are connected in in some way or another. Yeah, I guess uh, going back to your uh, talking about uh, auditioning for Fritz Reiner, that that first audition for the Chicago Symphony, um, I think – You know, a lot of a lot of players from my generation, we've heard of Fritz Reiner, of course, and we've heard the stories and things, but you actually lived through that. What was what was that like working under a conductor? I mean, and this was in in an age when conductors had absolute control over the orchestra and absolute control over the players. I mean, what what was that like on a day to day basis working, working that way? Uh,
1: Tremendously powerful uh, in many ways, powerful in that it was almost life-threatening, the attention was so great. And especially in rehearsals, in in, in concerts, maybe it, it wasn't quite so critical, but in rehearsals there's always a possibility of him stopping and, and, and auditioning you or singling you out or listening to your section in a way. So rehearsals were many times better than the concerts. Tremendous intensity, everybody on edge, everybody was there for every minute like my job and career depends on this particular moment it's like being totally in the present
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, at those at those rehearsals and the first time i went and sat in there you know I, here's the thing i after i after they asked me to come and join them i didn't really join until a little later but I was then first called to come in to, with all the guest conductors and playing the big piece Julie. I played fifth horn. Sitting down there next to Joe Mark, the old fourth horn player, and and being surrounded by that intensity and and that power. I, I think the power is that uh, there's nobody everybody's mind is <laughs> is totally occupied with being there right now. There's nobody daydreaming. Daydreaming meant you you were you were in great danger of losing your job, so <laughs> tremendous intensity thinking how difficult it would be I mean when I was a student up there listening to that that level of of playing I, thinking how hard that's got to be to go down there and play I never feeling ready for it and when I actually got there and started playing, it was incredibly easy. nobody was struggling, and everybody was on top of it. And there was just this wonderful conscious intensity every time that orchestra played, rehearsals or concerts, wherever it was, it was it was that way because of this man. And I always thought of him. You know, people just hated him because he made you work so hard. <clears throat> he didn't give you much. He, he he gave responsibility instead of taking responsibility. You had to really be uh, conscious and aware when you were there and which was difficult and you know people would gripe and boy why doesn't he you know, why does he do this why does he make us work so hard and then after the concert or afterwards you'd say wow we really did something we did mm-hmm. something we we really all of us together made this happen and I always think of it as a, as a, a general uh a commander uh, with troops, you know. Uh, everybody hates the boss. <laughs> and, and he's a, a, a tough son of a gun. And and uh, he makes your life miserable as a soldier, but you win the war. And after the war, he's a hero.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's the guy. And this was so funny. I, I know that after Reiner died, so many of the people that hated him the most and griped about him in the basement really were members of the Reiner society and really missed him. It's not a black and white thing. It's It's something much bigger than that.
0: Yeah, I think uh, there's material enough for a book there and on just the complex relationship between, you know, the musicians in an orchestra and the conductor. (laughs) It's, you know, like you said, it is kind of in some aspects, depending on the conductor, it's almost a militaristic kind of thing. It's almost like a, a sports coach kind of thing. And then, you know, just depending on the way the conductor chooses to navigate that relationship with the orchestra, it can take a lot of different forms.
1: Well, that's true, and but this whole idea of giving responsibility instead of taking responsibility—you can, you can be really frustrated with the conductor because they're taking all the responsibility, they're flailing around and trying to conduct every note and trying to take—and and, and you feel like you're you're just working in a factory because they're not giving responsibility. And on the other side of that is what what Reiner did. You know, in the book I relate. The idea that uh, I did have this dream that Reiner died and they froze him in a solid block of clear ice (laughs) and they wheeled him out on the podium. We did a concert with him frozen solid in this ice and he didn't move. Of course, he didn't didn't move at all. And it was one of the best concerts because (laughs) just just because of his essence being there, Mm And that's, what, that's what the old people used to say about Roginski. Raj, they, they hated uh, Artur Roginski when he conducted there in Chicago because he was also a huge tyrant. But with uh, the same thing that uh, after he left it, 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 those concerts were really special. I mean these kinds of conductors that get a hold of an orchestra that's that good <laughs> mm-hmm it's magic it's yeah. magic you know yeah. and and i and i think that you know it's hard to be a conductor it's hard to be a young conductor and get experience with uh amateur groups that aren't very good it's so much easier <laughs> at, <laughs> at the next level you
0: know no, it's interesting you mentioned in your book. Uh, so you you studied with Philip Farkas, you know, just prior to to winning that position in in the in the orchestra. So you went, you know, in the space of a, a you know a single audition from being a student to being his colleague, and the orchestra. And and you know, what was that like? What was that like playing in that section in, in the CSO at that time?
1: Well, I was the kid. I was the youngest member of the orchestra by far, and uh, everybody called me the kid. <laughs> I had a heck of a time finally getting to the place where I could call Mr. Farkas Phil. Uh-huh. He said, for heaven's sake, call me Phil, you know, oh, Mr. Farkas, you know, I mean, he, uh, we, we had a really good relationship and uh, I think in a, in a way we enjoyed each other. Uh, I've often thought about that and why, and how this all happened. I mean, for me, if I would have been a freshman at Northwestern and studied with him for four years, this could have never happened. Mm. Because as a teacher, you, 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 you have a student and they're at a certain level. And, and even though you resist the urge, you tend to think of them, even though when they get better, you t- tend to think of them at that level. Mm-hmm. And I came there as a senior at Northwestern from Fresno. And I could already play. I didn't Mm -hmm. know how I was doing it. I wasn't too conscious. I mean, I hadn't really gotten serious about playing. My playing was uh, up and down. You know, I was (laughs) like the athlete that would be really great one day, and the next day I would be sore and I couldn't move. I didn't have the consistency at all, but I came there as somebody who could play, and, and Farkas never thought of me. I don't think as a student more he thought of me more as a, a colleague in a way, because our lessons were lessons that were negotiated in a way. And this is the thing about teaching. I've always looked for students and and, and appreciated students who didn't take me at my word, in other words, who talked who had their own ideas and 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 my ideas, it was a negotiation. The, the worst students I had were the ones that, that I would, there would be a lesson and then I we'd talk about how to do something and how to phrase something. And and then next week they'd come back trying very hard to do exactly what I said. they try so literally to do exactly what you said. And all the time you're trying to feed them a, a a way for them to be on their own and discover these things for themselves. And they're totally interested in satisfying you and making, do you know what I'm trying to say there?
0: No, absolutely. (laughs) There's, there's very much. And I think even today there's a certain kind of student and it's, it's not the student's fault. I think our, not to get too, uh, not to generalize too much, but our education system in some ways seems to, Dismantle the creativity <laughs> in some aspects yes. and, and the idea of coming in and understanding that your teacher's not going to have all the answers you're you 're never going to have all the answers and it, as you said it 's kind of a negotiation let 's ask some questions and uh trial and error it, it's it's so much it's it 's one thing to know how to do something yourself, but then to try to help someone else understand how to do that thing for themselves. Well, that's the whole thing.
1: You're trying to give them the tools Mm -hmm. so that they can, can become their own teachers so that they can be self-critical so that they can get up in the morning, pick up their horn and say, Oh, wait a minute. There's this, this isn't working. I'm not free to play. You know, this is the thing about the horn. People say, well, it's a difficult instrument. Uh, uh, it's it's a it's a gift in that we can pick up the horn at any time and we can tell uh how free we are to play how what what <laughs> what our relationship is to this instrument and and most people don't have that they get up in the morning they don't have something to pick up and and it's like a thermometer taking your temperature
2: mm-hmm.
1: you get up and some mornings everything works and you can play and uh, some mornings it doesn't and then you need the tools to try and figure out why Mm
0: -hmm. it's an unforgiving instrument
1: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we're we're in charge of giving tools so that people can become their own teachers that's my idea of teaching Mm
0: -hmm. no i was just going to ask you about your, your teaching philosophy but i think you've pretty much encapsulated it there Looking back over your career, and there, there's some fantastic stories in your book about some of the practical jokes you've played on members of the orchestra as a way to, to kind of cut through that tension that exists in, in uh, you know, one of those high-level uh, ensembles. Um, you know, I guess taking taking all of these experiences into account, are there, are there a few moments that stand out to you as most memorable?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, definitely uh, at the end of the book, I talk about after I retired. And I was, I lit, I lived 200 miles away from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't, I live on a farm here that uh, my wife's father was a farmer, and we have this property here on the river. Beautiful. And this was always a plan I had never planned on and after I retired. And that's the whole thing about retirement. I always planned on getting out before somebody asked me to get out because. I'd seen too many times when really great players tried to hang on too long and they were no longer at the level of their colleagues and they, they refused to go. Well, anyway, I had this agreement with Mark Lawrence, the first trombone player in back of me, and he, that he's right in the back of my bell six feet away from my bell. And I said, <laughs> you know, when, when you sense that it's time, come and tap me on the shoulder and say, okay, it's time to move on, you know. Mm-hmm. 62 is is pretty old for a first-horn player anyway, and I managed all these years. So anyway, I di- he didn't have to do that, and I decided that at 62 I'd move aside and let somebody else do this job. So uh, that was 1960,
2: 1998.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, part of my agreement in retirement was that if they needed an extra person, a fifth horn for a large piece, they'd call me and I could say yes or no whether I wanted to come up and play. And so I chose to do that a couple weeks every year just to see my friends and hang out backstage and maybe pull a few pranks and tell some jokes and you know just be part of the environment again. And so uh, it was the opening of the season and uh, Mahler six and Mahler if you know Mahler six, it's a really intense, angry symphony. I always think of it as just a, uh, uh,
0: the Grim Reaper kind of. It's the one with the giant hammer. And
1: so, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, we,
1: oh, one time we did, we were playing something like that with a giant hammer in Chicago, and and the percussionist hit this this table with all these boards on it, and a giant sliver of it went shooting down through the trumpet section. Oh man, what a what a oh what gosh. chaos that caused. Anyway um anyway, um so I was asked to come and play opening of the season. So I went up and s- rehearsal on Saturday and it was fun to see everybody and we rehearsed from all our six and and then uh, Tuesday the the schedule was always Saturday rehearsal and then two rehearsals on Tuesday, one on Wednesday and then concert Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. So uh, I drove up Tuesday for the second rehearsal of the Mahler and I got uh, part way up there. I got to Las Venice and uh, stopped for coffee and I looked at the TV in the service station and it was when the planes were going into the tower, 9-11. And I thought, well, that won't change anything. I'll you know that's in the East Coast, uh, we're on the West Coast. So I kept driving, and I drove for another hour, and then my wife called and said the symphony called, and everything's canceled. the bridges are closed, they've shut down, everything everybody was panicked. Well, anyway, I drove home and waited and and so about Thursday, they decided that they could go ahead and open open the season and have a concert. I can't remember it's was Thursday. it might have been Friday. So we went up Friday morning and we had a rehearsal at a concert. So we missed two rehearsals on that, but everybody knew Mahler Six and And so the the Friday night then was the opening of the season, Mahler Six, after this nine eleven experience. And you couldn't believe the tension in the hall. I mean people were afraid and they, they were taking a chance just to be in the hall. I mean, people thought, well, somebody's gonna blow this thing up. Mm-hmm. And the orchestra was incredibly uh, emotional and tense. And uh, I knew, and I think everybody else knew that this was gonna be the performance of our lives with everybody at a, at a level that's unbelievable emotionally. So we got to the concert that night And Michael Tilson Thomas played the Star Spangled Banner. They always played the Star Spangled Banner to open a concert series, Mm -hmm. concert season. And he played it sotto voce, muted strings, super soft. Everybody was teared up. I mean, you couldn't believe how that affected the audience Mm -hmm. and how it affected us. And I knew that this was going to be the performance of a lifetime. They finished... Starts playing a better muted strings, and somebody way up in the gallery hollered out really loud, "Play ball!" And it was incredible. It was like it was like somebody threw a wet blanket over everything. No kidding. I mean, yeah. it's like def- deflating a balloon. It made me realize how incredibly vulnerable we are as musicians at that level, and it's something that we take for granted. We mm-hmm. just assume it, it's going to be there every night and we go there and we sort of reach that level and we play at that level of understanding of chamber music, listening to each other and and making a concert work.
2: Uh,
1: it's really quite a magical thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: that happens, that we take for granted. Those people, those of us at that level that play at that level with those kinds of orchestras, we go every week and we play at that level. And we just sort of assume that that level is going to be there. But when this crazy thing happened, when this guy said play ball, mm-hmm. it just was an amazing situation. And anyway, we were really, I think we were really angry. After the concert, people are griping, how could this happen? You know, to ruin this thing and And also probably angry because we didn't realize we were that vulnerable, and we were we were that vulnerable. The next week, I went back to play, and there was a note on the board from a woman that said she was so sorry she had taken her father who has Alzheimer's to the concert, and he thought he was at the ball game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So now <laughs> we're jerked around, we're really angry at this crazy guy who said "Play ball." And then we had to sort of swallow uh, our anger and say, well, unfortunately, the poor guy thought he was at the ballgame. He didn't do it maliciously. <laughs> that's, what an anyway, incredible story. The vulnerability yeah. of, of, of performances at that level and, and the magic of it. I think that's why people go to concerts. They're looking for that intensity of, uh, I mean, you go to hear a fine string quartet they're looking for that intensity of, of, uh, performance. Mm -hmm.
0: And it's, it's palpable, even if it's, you know, a single soloist or an entire orchestra, when, when, when everything is, is happening at that level, it, it's, it really is something you can pick up on in the audience. I think so. Yeah. That's what we're selling.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You, You mentioned, you know, the idea of the creative, not caring, you mentioned, uh, in your book, um, you know various practical jokes that you played on uh, colleagues and things to sort of diffuse the tension. Uh, are, are there other things, in addition to that, that you would you would recommend to people uh, to help? maintain uh, a long career or staying positive? Cause I, you know, there, there are so many folks in a lot of different careers that they kind of get more and more bitter as, as time goes on. And they only seem to want to focus on the negative things, but that, that doesn't seem to have happened to you. And, you know, you're still active and still writing books, obviously, and, and sharing your knowledge. W- what has helped you stay uh, motivated and stay positive all this time?
1: Basically, I think it's a lifelong struggle to not take yourself so seriously. And that involves ego. It's, it's fighting this ego thing that you think you're somehow separate. And the key then is to keep remembering somehow that you're not separate. We're all one thing. We're all connected. And what you let, when you let yourself... Disappear into your own ego, life becomes really difficult, and uh, it's not an easy thing to to do. To be, and I'm not saying I'm totally free of ego. I'm certainly not, but I try to stay aware of who I am and what I am. And uh, sports and music and so on, it, it can generate it can generate ego in a way that uh, can be uncomfortable. I can't say that I was always been humble. But I can say that I was never really the sharpest tool in the toolbox. Uh, these opportunities came to me, and somehow I took advantage of them. But there are people with way more technique than me, and especially now, and, and way, way more facility. And, and I must say that I think that whole level of playing, in the last fifty or sixty years, has increased exponentially. Uh, you go to an audition, and now I'm sure there's half of those people would be perfectly great at that job. Mm-hmm. The level is incredible. So you're looking for that special thing. You're looking for that that humanness, and you're looking for that. Ability to be a colleague, to fit in, to mm-hmm. fit in, and it's, that's 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 a real gift to be able to fit in. Mm-hmm. And I think that all my practical jokes and <laughs> for years when I went back, the people would say they wouldn't say, "Gee, we really miss your playing." <laughs> say, "God, we really, we really miss your jokes." And <laughs> nobody's doing it now, you know it's disappeared nobody's doing that kind of thing anymore i don't no, know
0: yeah no i i think i think that's something that uh humor is is in a lot of ways it's like music it's it's sort of a universal language you know if you can get somebody laughing if you can you know somehow bring a smile to their face you've no matter how gruff a person they are you've somehow you've broken through a little bit the same way you can do that with a, a shared piece of music or something like that yes you make make a connection you know no it's interesting you you mentioned uh, obviously Speaking with you now and, and reading through all of these different stories in your book, you, you have a fantastic sense of humor, and you certainly don't seem to take yourself too seriously. The interesting thing to me was my first, and I think I mentioned this when we were chatting through email, uh, your, your orchestral excerpt CD was the first, well, about, I think it was the second horn recording I ever bought. The first one was Dennis Brain and the Strauss Concertos, but yours was the second one I ever bought. And so I, I had no idea what I was going to get. I knew it was, you know, you were going to be playing these excerpts. That I had listened to recordings of, and it was just going to be the horn parts. And you know, I put the CD on, and uh, you know, you, you open up with the the quinium from the B minor Mass, and then you start talking. And you know, your your narration and your explanation of all these excerpts was fantastic. But to me, it came across you you were super serious, and everything was you know this is this is uh, this is how how things go, and very businesslike. Uh, but I, I think now, li- having listened to that CD many, many, many times over the years, there's always kind of bubbling onto the surface, just that little bit of humor. I imagine you saying some of those things with a twinkle in your eye and uh, <laughs> just the, the way you deliver some of that uh, narration about the excerpt. So I think to me, that's a little bit of an added dimension on that CD. So if if, if folks, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go listen to, to Dave's uh, orchestral excerpts for horn CD. It'll 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 really be uh, a great listening experience yeah you know i was a pioneer
1: that i was the first one to do one someone records asked me if i'd be interested actually i talked to gail and i and gail said they said why don't you both do this uh, cd and gail said no no you've been playing uh, all these years you do it so she turned it over to me and so i was the first one to do one and uh, i thought well this is this will be a cinch i'll I'll just play these excerpts and then I'll talk a little bit about them. But what I realized that playing the excerpts was easy that I didn't have to think about that at all. But what I wanted to say about them really took some time and I had to write it all out. I had to really decide what I wanted to say. I couldn't just fake it.
0: What stands out to me about that CD is you're, you're able to get, to my ear to just the right sound for every excerpt, you know, you, you span everything from Bach, uh, you know, to, to Strauss. So it, to cover that many styles and to just get everything to me, just exactly right. It was, it's, it's such a feat and to, to, for it to just basically just be you. And there are some cases where you play, you know, the duets with the, the second horn player, uh, uh, Laurie Weston, right?
1: Oh, I had a wonderful second horn player for all those years. Yeah. She, she made my life easy. She was very strong, and and she could. I'll never forget that <laughs> the audition that she took years back. One of one of the audition pieces then was the Tchaikovsky thing. Uh, Where's it from? with Symphony? Um, Dom Oh, uh, Tchaik Five, the last movement. Yeah, yeah.
0: last movement of Tchaik Five. Yeah. Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> and these candidates, uh, whatever my intonation or whatever I'm doing, I don't know. These uh, other candidates played that and, and, and just, you know, it was pretty mediocre. And Lori came in and sat down and she played it. And she was just spot on on with me and octaves like we'd been playing together for years. She just played it. Anyway, yeah, she was a gift that I had all those years.
0: Well, uh, Dave, I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I, I think, uh, you know, we wanted to try to keep... Hey, i retired, an hour. James, I'm retired. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've got other things you could be doing. But I, I did want to ask you, uh, being that this is a, a, the International Horn Society podcast, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about the International Horn Society and, and, and maybe what the organization has meant to you over these years and maybe share a, a funny story or two about a, a memorable horn symposium?
1: Oh, there are so many. I could go on forever. Um, I I was pretty much in at the beginning. I think the first time I went was the second one. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And uh, I think, yeah, I think that was the one where Dale and I shared a recital. Mm -hmm. And that was so, (laughs) I had this idea that Dale and I should improvise a duet. and this was before Dale really sort of got into improvisation and jazz, and he hadn't really done anything, and I'd never done anything like that either, so I said to Dale, let's finish this recital off, we'll improvise and do it, and he said Dale said, well, I don't know he says, I never did anything like that before (laughs) I said, neither have I neither have I but let's give it a shot he said, well, what do we do? I said, well, you start in and I'll follow you in and you just do whatever you want to and I'll sort of mirror it in a funny way and we'll just play for a while. And then uh, I had the idea that we'd finish up by playing uh, Till Ohlenspiegel excerpt. He'd play it right side up and I'd play it upside down. So (laughs) we got to the recital, the concert and all my old teachers, Wendell Haas, Philip Fargus, Jim Winter, all my all my heroes were out there in the audience for this. And so <laughs> I, I put up a whole bunch of music stands and <laughs> I put out a whole bunch of manuscript paper on those music stands. And I explained to the audience that we'd commissioned this piece, but Dale and I hadn't had a, a chance to rehearse it too much. And we're going to do the best <laughs> we can because we live in different cities. And so we're just going to see what comes of this. And so, I started out. Boom, you know. I mean, Dale started out, and up and down, all over the place. And I was doing trilling and glissing, and you know, all this crazy stuff—stuff stuff that I could never do. It was written, anyway. <laughs> we we got we played for a little while, and I stopped and I said, "Dale, wait a minute. I think we're a bar off." Uh. And Dale, yeah, I think so. So he started again. I started after, him. we did this. And uh, finally, we got, to, we got tired of doing that, and we stopped, and Dale, and we played the till upside down and right side up. Well, it was a big hit, but the reason I'm telling the whole story is that Farkas, my dear teacher, Farkas, who is in a way opposite from me, and he's what I would call an intellectual person, and I'm more of an emotional person, He came up and he was very excited. He says, I have to have a copy of that piece. That was great. And I said, okay, well help yourself. You can have the original. So he walks around and he looks, he looks and it says nothing. He says, There's nothing on this. There's nothing on this manuscript. And I said, You're damn right. I said, if that would have been written, I could have never played it. And knowing full well that if that was written, Farkas was the kind of guy who would spend hours and hours and figure out and actually play it. Well, for me, I was totally disgusted with somebody like that and I wouldn't spend the time doing it. So that was the difference between us. He he could do that and I couldn't.
0: I love that story. Now, was that the same symposium where you did the trios, the Rika trios?
1: Yes, we did. We got Michael Herzl to play third on the trio. Dale and my, I played second, and Michael, and and then we at the we finished and we sang it. And. Uh, it sounded pretty good singing actually that da, 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 you know
0: <laughs> that that recording is still available on the the horn society website there's a lot of those really archive. yeah yeah i'll have to see if i can't uh dig that up but that's yeah i i've listened to that before and it's it's really cool it's it's really, it's really <laughs> did new. you hear the uh, did you hear the improvised duet too i can't remember if that one's on there I, the, the rika one comes to mind um yeah. I'll, I'll have to double check and see what that is but the workshops are- uh,
1: somehow gotten serious, more serious, and uh, and I don't know there's a flavor there now that when we first started the first couple of workshops, it, it was a little looser, mm-hmm. like this, like Dale and I, and and uh, it was a little more informal, and things could happen, and uh, it was just different,
0: yeah. No, I, I like that idea though. That I mean, everybody having you know done some playing at those myself it does we put a lot of pressure on ourselves because we're all playing for other horn players and as you said sometimes your teachers and mentors and colleagues are in the audience but yeah i think i think we could all take a little bit of that pressure off ourselves and and just have try to have a good time
1: you know at that same concert i remember uh i was looking around backstage and there was this cart two-wheeled cart that with the a a way to pull it by a horse, you know, a a sort of a, a stage prop, but it was, it could move and it was a cart. So I got Dale to play Beadlow while I pulled him around on this cart. Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, is, is there any, any, anything you'd say to, you know, some of the the students today about, you know, why they should join the horn society and, and what would you say is a good reason for them to, to do that?
1: History, history of the instrument, history of, of performance. Get a sense of of the idea that you're part of a long line of people who have played this instrument, going back as as forever, as far as. Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. You know, people who've been blowing on instruments all those years, and and to feel your connection to those people, people who have been pioneers in this field and and taken us to the point we are now, where the level is so high still. But to appreciate all those people, you know, um, we we all start out with Dennis Brain, but. Before that they were wonderful players and and yeah, a, a sense of a sense of history and a sense of you're part of something bigger than yourself. I think that's the key to to the IHS and and, and being in a sort of a brotherhood or a fraternity of people who do something special, who know something special because they play this instrument. That's, I think that's what I have to say about that.
0: That's fantastic. I can't, I can't follow that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Dave Crable for speaking with me today. It's, it's been a real pleasure.
1: Well, it's, you c- certainly have made it easy, James. You've been a wonderful host and I, I thank you for this opportunity. And uh, um I just send my goodwill out to all you horn players out there who uh, made contact with this. And I hope you uh, appreciate and enjoy the opportunity to play this wonderful instrument and to be part of music in that way.
2: We better do this thing pretty soon. Uh,
1: Should we start at the ending? End at the starting.